Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, the podcast. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our family of origin. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word, hashtag AdopteeLand. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash AdopteeLand. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here. My next guest is an adoptee with a master's degree in journalism. That alone makes me perk right up. He resides in Chicago, my hometown, and is a wealth of information. His ability to make things plain and easy to understand is in his delivery of a message through storytelling. And he has so many to share with us. I seem to learn so much from him. I sit with his words long after he said them. His name is Mark Haglin. And in this episode, he talks about race as a transracial adoptee. His mission is to educate prospective adoptive parents on what they need to know if they are interested in adopting outside of their race. As adoptees, we too can learn a lot from his work. His invention of a powerful example of why it's critical to parent from a posture of anti-colorism and have the talks about racial differences is one of the biggest conversations any of us can have with each other. I think his invention to help explain the importance of addressing race sooner rather than later will resonate and stay with you for a long time. Allow me to introduce you to someone whose lived experience as an Asian person reared in white culture deeply impacted how he sees himself in the world. He has a passion for helping people from all walks of life join the adoptee movement and become some of our best allies. Mark Haglin. Hi, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing good, too. um, I'm excited to be able to have a conversation with you today. And I think... Let's just start off with a fun fact or a truth chuckle about you that people might not know. Well, there are two parts of this. One, I've always loved learning languages. And I'm the way I describe it now is I'm involved 
with several with seven languages. Mm. Um, yeah, it gets really complicated because monolingual people say, "Well, what? Which ones are you fluent in?" And anyway, fluency is just a, a very loosey goosey term. Probably, if pressed, I would say I'm fluent in four languages. But anyway, the fun, the chuckle about it is that I'm also I also tend to be rather OCD, and so when I type out. All, any of my languages, I'm super obsessed with getting all the accents and diacritical marks correct, because I would be mortified if I got the accents wrong. <laughs> so, so that's the chuckle part of the fun fact. How's that? I like it. I like okay. it. So mine Good. is, Good. I could play "Drift Away" by Dobie Gray every single day. <laughs> wow. What do you wow. think of it? Do you know Do you know Dobie Gray? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know that. You that's know that song? Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very nice song. Yeah, so that's mine. When yeah. I think of you, Mark, I'm reminded of us, like writers and published authors and mm-hmm. those who speak to audiences about adoption as being a part of a team. Uh, we yeah. may have different lanes, but a shared goal of providing information to members of the adoption community and beyond. So many adoptees and people in general desire connection, information, and truth. So being able to hear from you today for the purpose of this podcast is particularly important to me because of what you have to say about race as a transracial adoptee. So wherever you want to start, how much you want to share is perfect. Well, thank you so much. I'll literally just spend two minutes about my my background and my narrative so people understand where I'm coming from. And then then we can just plunge in wherever we'd like to go. So uh, I was born in October 1960. Uh, I was adopted at the age of eight months, along with my twin brother, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I grew up there. I was raised by a Norwegian-American father and a German-American mother. And just before my 18th birthday, I went off to the University of Wisconsin-Madison undergrad, and then I came to Chicago to get my master's in journalism at Northwestern University. And I've been here since then, which is 1981, and I love it. And I started becoming involved in the adoption community, and I primarily am involved in the transracial adoption community in 2000. So that's 21 years ago already. And I have an incredibly strong sense of mission because growing up in near total whiteness, even with very loving parents, was absolutely devastating for me. And it took me a really, really long time to find myself as a person of color. So one of my senses of mission in all of us is supporting fellow transracial adoptees on their lifelong journeys and helping to educate white transracially adoptive parents so that they can do better by their adopted children of color. In fact, I consider both journeys to be lifelong journeys. And I even put that in the subhead to the title of my book, Extraordinary Journey, the lifelong path of the transracial adoptee that I published this spring. And so I just feel very, very strongly about my sense of mission. If I can help a single adoptee, if I can help a single family 
it makes all the difference in the world. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And as a published author, what, what has been the most rewarding thing about that accomplishment? Well, besides getting it done, <laughs> which is rewarding in and of itself, just get, getting it, the thing done. The most rewarding thing is hearing from others who say your work has changed my life or your work has changed my parenting or your work has helped me to see something. I'm a rather spiritual person and I believe we one of the reasons we're on earth is to help each other to the extent we can. And my life has been so interesting to me in that growing up a complete alien, having experiences of racism and marginalization only made me want to help people more. It really fired my compassion. So the greatest satisfaction is simply being able to share and know that it's helping others. Mm-hmm. And it, it is indeed helping others. I know we had a chance to talk about the work that you do. And I am thinking now of, as a transracial adoptee, educating adoptive parents. You've come across some challenges. What What do you oh, think? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> what do you think, if you can, you would consider is or has been the most challenging? I think so... Someone came up with a term early on when we created our Facebook groups around transracial adoption, and the term we use is rainbows and unicorns. A rainbows and unicorns view of adoption, which is, and I'm, I'm sure you know what, what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. the idea, you, you know, you save this baby or child and they'll be forever grateful and everyone will be dancing through fields of daisies on a summer afternoon 24 7 365 right and what i feel very strongly about and the biggest challenge really is moving parents away from a rainbows and unicorns view of adoption but also helping them forward on their path so they don't just become disillusioned and discouraged In the transracial adoption world, one of the things that I see happening all the time is when white parents who have adopted children of color, at a certain point, it dawns on them that racism is real. Now, you know, and I know as people of color, that for many white people, racism feels rather abstract because they haven't experienced it themselves. And so when they experience it through their children they're shocked they're shocked that it's it's really real it's it's there it's a thing one of the things that happens and i talk about this in my book is i've seen numerous parents go through a pattern they start out with the rainbows and unicorns view then their child consistently experiences racism and they actually realize racism is real and then they do what i call collapsing into an existential heap Mm. (laughs) they collapse into an existential heap and they begin to tragedize their child's narrative which is also not good Mm -hmm. so that the typical white mom let's say the typical white mom of a black child grew up in whiteness really did not understand that racism was a thing they might have they might have paid lip service to it but really didn't understand how devastating it can be. 
the black child consistently experiences racism in preschool and school. And at a certain point, the white mom kind of collapses into an existential heap and says, oh, my gosh, you know, my little Susie, her life is going to be a tragedy. And that's what I call tragedizing the narrative. Now, the thing that is challenging for that white mom is to understand that black moms who themselves were traumatized by racism have to raise their children in their awareness. But white people who never had that experience take it as a massive, it, it totally overturns their whole view of the world. And so I see parents go through those phases and hopefully after they collapse into an existential heap and tragedize their child child's narrative, then they get out of those phases and they go on to the more mature phase, which is realizing they have to be a lifelong ally to their child of color. They have to learn about race, racism, systemic racism, everything, as well as all the adoption stuff. And that's where I feel very passionately about my small role in helping parents forward. Because when I was growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the 1960s, there were no resources for transracially adopted parents at all. Zero. Uh, There's nothing. Mm -hmm. And my parents did amazingly well with zero resources. I mean, they weren't perfect, but no one is. But they had great emotional intelligence. But now we're in 2021. And as I like to say, we have the Google people. And the (laughs) other thing that's happened is we adult transracial adoptees have been busy creating an entire literature created by us. Mm-hmm. So we, I'm constantly promoting everyone else's work, constantly saying, if you want to understand what will happen to your child, read these books, watch these documentaries, read these blogs, read these videos, um, because we are your children all grown up. And I know it's very hard for them. It was hard when you have a baby who's 18 months old. It's hard to imagine what their life will be like when they're 35, right? But that's kind of one of the core things that I try to do in our groups and I try to do it in my book is explain what this journey is like for transracial adoptees. And I I never claim to speak for all. I just talk about it in relation to my own journey and and also my conversations with literally thousands of adoptees. Mm -hmm. It sounds like every adoptive parent or will say... uh potential adoptive parents should read your book. Well, that would be amazing. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I mean, just to have a handle and an idea yeah. of what's to come. Would yeah. you say that these maybe phases that adoptive yeah. parents kind of go through of transracial yeah. adoptees, do, does it take a while? Or is it something... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the uh, the sad happy of this, right? <laughs> the sad is some people never get out of some of the early phases. The happy is mo- many do. It can take a while. It really depends. I, What I have found is that whether it's because of personal temperament, whether it's because of their cultural background, whether it's because of... You know, in some cases, also, parents are adopting children with special needs. So, of course, they're very focused on those. Um, There are a lot of variables. 
But one of the things I have found is that if if we adoptees can explain things in simple, clear terms to adoptive parents, most want to listen. They do. They love their children and they want to do well by them. The hard part, the factor that's pushing back against that is white fragility. Um, and by the way, I think everyone needs to read Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. It's like it explains it all. Mm-hmm. And and every person of color who's read the book, I tell this little funny story. I say, okay, so every POC I know who's read that book, they're you know they read page one sixty two. Okay, page one sixty two. Okay, got it. Yeah, page one sixty three. Oh yeah, got it. I knew this. Page one sixty four. Every white person I know who's read the book, page one sixty two. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Page one sixty three. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Page one sixty four. Oh my gosh. And Every white person I've talked to has said, I had to put the book down mm. at, at times, not because, and, and I'll speak of a therapist I know, I'll just call her X. X is a wonderful person. It was really hard for her to read that book. And she said, you know, I had to set it down a whole bunch of times, including one time for a few months. She said, I just... It was so intense for me to read this. And I said, you know, X, and I told her what I just shared with you now. And she was like, wow, okay. I said, well, that's just because most white people really don't know what it's like to live as a person of color. And so now imagine that you're a parent who is white and who has lived in whiteness all their life and has adopted a child of color. And you come into this with the rainbows and unicorns understanding of adoption, which is typical. Not everyone, but it's typical. So imagine how hard that is. And I really understand it. Like, I get it. It's not, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. And a lot of people do kind of crumble when they find out that racism is real, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway. I wonder... Because I know this has, this for years now, has been a question as to is it a good idea for white people to adopt black children? Well, you know, it's a huge, as you know, it's a controversy that's been going on for many decades. Right. The way I would respond, and as you know, I'm Asian, not black, for one thing, but what I would say is there are a lot of children who do need families, they have been relinquished or they've been put into foster care because the parents are not capable of raising them. Um, Black people are adopting black children, but there are a lot more children available than people willing to adopt. So for all the challenges involved, I absolutely know, I, I know personally of situations where yes, it was the right thing for the white family to adopt the black child. Now, that having been said, they're starting out with a gigantic deficit, right, of knowledge and understanding. And the worst is if you're going to raise a black child, this is true a child of any color, but let's say black, a black child in total or near total whiteness. That's going to be absolutely devastating for that child. And that's that again that fuels my sense of mission because it, we often say and i certainly have said it 
like a billion times. Love is not enough. You know, I had very loving parents, very loving parents. But growing up in near total whiteness was still devastating for me. It took me a really long time to work through, and I'm still working on it, but work through my internalized racism towards myself mm. and, and to honor myself as a person of color and to say, you know, to throw off the the white mind, I guess I would call it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, for example, one of the things that's happened to me, and this also gets involved in birth culture for an international adoptee, is over the years, my skin has darkened. Um, and so one thing about Asians is we've got a lot of carotene in our skin. So we can darken a great deal, right? And when I, when I was uh, a child, you know, I would get extremely dark in the summer and then that would go away in the winter. Well, over time, as an adult, it hasn't. So I am often thought by Latino people to be Latino, which is great. I love Latino culture and I, um, and I speak Spanish. But as a Korean, there's tremendous colorism in Korean culture and East Asian culture. I'm now unacceptable there. And so one of the things that that how that speaks to me is growing up in whiteness. First of all, I wasn't white to begin with, and now I'm farther away from white. When you ask the question, should white people even be adopting black children? My answer is that it's complex. There are needs and there are children who really need families. But sadly, there are some who probably never will be capable of raising children of color, including black children. Others will be, but it's going to be a long journey for them, right? And then then there are others who actually are going to pick it up pretty fast. Maybe they grew up in a diverse neighborhood. Maybe they have a number of black friends. And sometimes interracial couples will adopt, so that that helps. But there's just so much that transracially adoptive parents have to learn. I know that many of them get overwhelmed. I know when they go into our Facebook groups, and I've, I've interacted with them at conferences in person, that they're overwhelmed, and they're just trying to figure it all out. It's like your entire world flips. <laughs> and you're like, wait, now I don't even know what is, what's up and what's down anymore. And they become a little bit destabilized, and they don't know who to listen to. Right. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Mm-hmm. I, I really should have asked the question a little bit better. And that is, should white people adopt non-white people? And right. so it sounds like your your answer would be the same. Right. Yeah. 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 That there are children who need families mm-hmm. and that the risk of deracination is high, but children who are in foster forever and grow out of that or in the international context who grow up in orphanages, it's like a really bad thing. So there are risks and benefits that you have to weigh. But what I would say is that prospective adoptive parents really need to start thinking this through. And most of the time, I, I will say I'm very heartened now in our Facebook groups, we're getting more and more prospective adoptive parents. Hmm. And that's that's really nice. Yeah. And they'll say, so we have transracial adoption perspectives 
is our main English language Facebook group. And then we have something called Tap 101 where we we help people the newbies and as I, I as I like to say we hold hands mm-hmm. um, and we're now getting more prospective adoptive parents saying hi my name is Susie my husband and I don't have any children but we're thinking of adopting transracially I heard about your groups I want to learn before I get my child and that is incredibly heartening to me right yes. <laughs> like it's like, wow, you actually have learned something about race and adoption before you have your child, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. not later. So I almost get the impression that adoption agencies, even still today, don't encourage prospective adoptive parents to do homework, to do things beforehand. Yeah. The sad truth is they don't. Yeah. Many years ago, this is about 16, 17 years ago now. I was asked by a local agency, and I won't name your name for privacy's sake because I'm about to criticize them. <laughs> <laughs> I was asked by Agency X to come speak on their prospective parents' day. And this lady with this very sing-songy voice, like the Dana Carvey church lady. <laughs> anyway, she says to me over the phone, we would love it if you would come and share your story of personal success with us. I mean, that really was, actually, it was even more exaggerated than that. But anyway, and I paused and I said, well, you know, I would be glad to speak for you for the, to the adoptive, tr- prospective adoptive parents. But I do feel that I should at least mention issues around race, racial identity and racism. And there was such a long pause on the other end of the line. I thought that the call had dropped and I was about, it was like seven seconds. And I was about to say, are you still there? When she said, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just like that. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) So I showed up on the appointed day about two weeks later and told my story. And Literally, Jennifer, I spent like two minutes on race and racism. Two minutes. I said like maybe five sentences. You know, you need to think about this. You need to think about that. That was it. They never asked me back. I look back on that now and I think, yeah, I mean, I've heard from others too who have other transracial adoptees who have spoken. I have one friend who's a fellow Korean adoptee. She is like the sweetest person on earth. I mean, she tells it like it is, but she's sweet. Like you couldn't, you couldn't not love her. And she spoke at this agency several times and they told her, well, the feedback we're getting is that you're an angry adoptee. (laughs) And she Mm. told me this and I was like, what? (laughs) Like, like if you, if you knew my friend, you would be like, what the hell? Like how, She's an angry adoptee. She's like the least angry presenting person on earth. Mm-hmm. She's sunny and engaging and funny and sweet. And they called her an angry adoptee. So in answer to your question, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> I think that the agencies are just totally focused on making that connection, handing the baby or the child to the parents and kind of walking away, you know. And I think it's hard in all adoption that that's true, but it's particularly hard in transracial adoption because 
parents have nothing, right? Now, fortunately, they have the internet. They can start, you can literally just type in transracial adoption and you will get a zillion hits. <laughs> like, you, you know, you'll be going for hours and hours and hours and hours. So there is that. But the fact that the agencies are so, uh, I don't even know what the word is, but they're refusing to share with prospective adoptive parents that there might be any issues. That's a fail, you know, that's an epic fail, but it is what it is. They're an industry. I mean, it's awful to say, but I'm gonna make an analogy. A car, a used car salesperson never says to you, well, you know, this car already has 120,000 miles and it's got some dents and you might want to look under the, the chassis for rust. You know, a used car salesperson never does that, right? And the same way with agencies, although that sounds really terrible to compare them to used car salespeople, but I think you know what I mean, right? Like they, they don't want to create any doubt in the minds of prospective parents. And that's a disservice to everyone. Right. I think that adoptive parents, it's a lot they couldn't possibly know. And I'm just hoping that now moving forward that people will pick up the books and and listen. And and like you said, this whole thing about an angry adoptee, like yeah. is there not yeah. space enough? Because it seems like it doesn't take much for us to be labeled that. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And is there not space enough to, to just listen? Yeah. And I think one of the important things is there, there are two aspects of that labeling. First of all, it's very silencing, as you know, mm-hmm. as an adoptee. And then secondly, what I find amazing, and I've posted in our Facebook groups about this numerous times, imagine, so, so here we have this binary frame, right? adoptees are happy or they're angry and i said imagine if someone said to you well are you a happy or angry adoptive parent and you can only be one or the other and if you're a happy adoptive parent you're dancing through fields of daisies on a summer afternoon 24 7 365 and if you're an angry adoptive parent you know you're like homicidal three uh uh, 24 7 365 and you can only be one or the other and you can never be both and you can never be in between doesn't that seem ridiculous <laughs> that know? is i'm so glad you share that that is right it's ridiculous yeah, yeah. and yet what happens is that i think many adoptive parents are terrified to hear from adult adoptees and they are so afraid that they will be judged and they're so so afraid that there will be criticism of adoption uh, and there will be criticism of adoption like there will be criticism of anything else but the parents who are unafraid or less afraid are the ones who learn the fastest who learn it all <laughs> and they also create the healthy and healthier environments for their children to grow up in, right? And when it comes to transracial adoption, they're the ones who are willing to learn about race. The thing to me that is sad and shocking is that in 2021, there are white adopted parents who still are totally unwilling to even open the door a crack to thinking about race, right? Like, oh my gosh, that's so scary. 
and the th- I tell this terrible joke, so if, I hope you don't mind my telling. I don't mind. Go ahead. So they, okay. <laughs> so my joke is, and I, I've never said this to any adoptive parent, just to be clear. Okay. My joke is that they they've adopted a little black baby girl, and they say to each other, "No one is ever going to guess that little Susie is black," right? <laughs> and and that's kind of their attitude, right? Yeah. Like, like it's going to be, and and then they get into the whole, you know, like let's say they're Smiths, right? Their name is Smith. So Susie is just a Smith. She's exactly like all of us. So they erase their daughter's culture. They erase her race, like literally. They put on her, they place on her this intense burden of navigating the world, knowing, you know, experiencing racism, and yet having to also comfort white people and their fragility. Robin D'Angelo talks about this a lot in, in her book, White Fragility. And what I talked about in my book is the cognitive dissonance. So as you know, cognitive dissonance is when something you're experiencing is not being processed in the same way. So the thing that I grew up with is none of us see race. Everyone saw race. <laughs> You know, it's like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And there's a very famous painting by the Belgian painter, René Magritte, where it's a picture of a a pipe, you know, like a um, smoking pipe. And it says under it in French, this is not a pipe. And he was a surrealist and he was trying to get people to think about what they see and experience versus what they believe or are told. So my gigantic cognitive dissonance growing up was people saying explicitly and implicitly, I don't see race, whereas I knew they all saw race. You know, mm-hmm. I was teased and taunted for being Asian. I, I knew everyone saw race. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what they saw in me. So uh, white transracially adopted parents must see race, yes. right? Colorblind does not work. Not at all. Right. And it's intensely damaging to the child, not only because the parents are not supporting that child. You know, this has been told to me literally countless times by adoptees. They grew up and they were racially aggressed, like on the playground or whatever at school. And they came home and, you know, the the little girl said the other girl, the other girl said, you know, your skin is the color of poop. Right. And the mother says, oh, she's just a mean girl. Just ignore her. That's just one person rather than I mean, hopefully they they would have sat down and talked about this beforehand. But anyway, rather than saying, "Okay, let's talk about this. Why do you think that she said this and then help supporting their child right, and saying, yes, that's called racism. It's mean. It's terrible and it's wrong. But there are people who have that attitude. They think that only white people are okay. And you need to understand that that's a deficit in them and not you. So many adult transracial adoptees I grew up with did not get that. Mm-hmm. They, got, they just got, oh, she's a mean girl, just ignore her and, you know, and, and nobody sees race and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. So, so that also is a part of my... Um, I, I explained to me, oh, there's, there's this one story I have to tell you, if you don't mind. Oh, I don't mind. So, great. It's my <laughs> traffic safety story. 
Okay. So this came to me. I invented this, and I shared it in my book, and I shared it in all the groups because it came to me because one of the things that transracially adopted parents have said, like, countless times is, you know, my daughter is four years old and I want her to stay innocent for a while. I'm afraid to talk about race and I'm especially afraid to talk about racism because if I talk about racism, that will wound her. And of course, I'm banging my head on the table reading this, right? Or listening to it if it's in person. So I came up with this story made up story i said okay so imagine that you have a little daughter who's four years old and you her name is susie or three years old let's say and you say to your friend you're having conversation with a friend and you say i couldn't possibly traumatize little susie by letting her know that she could be hurt in traffic and so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to let her run out into traffic and get hit by a car. And when she's in the ICU with all her bones broken and her internal organs crushed, I'm going to pull up a chair to the side of her bed and say, hi, Susie, let's talk about safety traffic, mm, traffic safety. Wow. Right. And the parents go, oh, <laughs> this is gigantic. Oh. And I say, this is why you need you're a white parent raising a child of color. You need to talk about racism before they experience it. That is because a great I, story. Thank you. Because that's my little invention. Because <laughs> I experienced it as a profound trauma. And no one prepared me for it. And it was extremely damaging to me. Well, let me, so, let me just yeah. say, that is not a little invention. <laughs> that okay. is big. Okay, thank you, thank you. Glad you like my traffic safety story. Yes. But the, here's the key thing, Jennifer. What I try to do is to jar the parents just a little bit, not like horribly. You know, I don't want them to <laughs> jump off the top of a tall building. But I want, I want to get them to think a little bit, right? right? And in the white mind, in white culture, and Robin DiAngelo does a brilliant job as a white woman talking to white people explaining these basic things in the white mind racism is something that's brought up right like nobody's racist until someone burns a cross on a lot or something right mm -hmm. whereas in reality we poc experience racism all the time and so these white people raised in whiteness somehow imagine that they're not preparing their child for racism is a nice thing, mm, right? right? It's not a nice thing. And so that's, anyway, thank you. That's why I tell that story. And every single time I tell that story, either in person or uh, in our Facebook groups, people go, oh. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, like, it just really touched me because yeah. I know neither of us are late discovery adoptees, but I also thought about yeah. that group, like their parents. Yeah, are, yeah you. that applies to them too. You're going to wait. Yeah. Yeah, until so they're, yeah. they're in an accident. Like, I don't know. It's yeah. just, that's good. Well, it's, it's, thank you. Because white culture is very toxic. And one of the ways in which white culture is toxic is that it spreads a blanket. This comes from me, too, so if you want to give me credit. But it, <laughs> it spreads a blanket of silence over everything mm -hmm. related to race. And I can tell you, growing up, way, way, way deep inside whiteness, that was my experience. Mm. That 
you could never talk about race. It was a taboo subject. No one knew how to talk about it. I mean, I even have a, um, I have a sidebar chapter in my book, Don't Ever Say Caucasian. And I explain, first of all, the word Caucasian has a very racist origin, actually has a eugenics origin, eugenicist origin. But anyway, but the main reason why I tell these white parents or I try to educate them around this is that they were raised in white culture to the extent that they are taught to be afraid to literally name race, to just literally, you know, say, oh, look, I I tell this other story. So you're sitting on a bench in a park and there are two people across from you, let's say two women, and one has, has a nice umbrella. And you say to your friend, oh, look at that nice umbrella. And the friend said, which person has that umbrella? And the one person is black, one person is white. And you're afraid to say black, the black person with the umbrella. I try to explain to these white pers- white parents that if you can't simply use basic racial identification, you're really going to make it hard. You're going to disable your children. So say white and black. Mm-hmm. Use basic, correct terms. And some of them don't know them. They come into our groups and they don't know. And they're using race, racial terms euphemistically. They're saying African-American and Caucasian, not out of respect, but because they've been taught to be afraid to use basic racial, correct, basic racially identifying terms. Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting yeah. how fear is yeah. is the root yeah. of, of this? It is. Well, our, our society teaches, okay, white culture teaches white people to be afraid of people of color Mm -hmm. and it teaches white people to be afraid of race so white people don't even think of themselves as white they think of themselves as normal Mm. (laughs) you know (laughs) and i have i have had that experience also as an lgbtq person i'm a gay man and heterosexual people don't think of themselves as heterosexual or straight they think of themselves as normal Mm -hmm. So, so it's the it's the theory of the other. Right. It's the frame of the other. That is so the, interesting, Mark. Yeah, yeah, and I'm so I'm constantly trying to break this down because again, I grew up in white culture. Like I literally know what white culture is like, mm-hmm. and I I know where all the pain points are and the landmines are, and a core one is that white people grew up disabled around race. And so I have some empathy, although it's limited, but I have some empathy because the average white person that you meet on the street will not be able to talk about race with you, like will not. The the reason is that they were trained to be disabled to even think about race. This is all this conversation has just got me going like you have to come back. Yeah, you really you no really you have got to come back. Oh, and I hope you. you will come back on. I will. Absolutely. Yeah, because like we could go, I think, easily another hour. Yeah. Because uh, so many things <laughs> yeah. are popping up for me because I'm looking forward to reading your book. And I, I really want to read as well Robin's book. So I'm, yes. I'm going to include that in the yes. show notes for the listeners. But, and, and once I do that, I want to like have you back on so we can Thank you. Yeah, continue our discussion. You know, I, just, I just tell people, give, give it to people as a Christmas or Hanukkah gift, right? Yeah. Like, I'm going to give you this book, right? So that you can figure it out and not be completely disabled as a white person. I really feel strongly, Jennifer, that this is 
one way that I can pay it forward. Yeah. Right. I've had a complex life as most people have, but my complexities are such that they also have enriched my understanding and I feel a deep moral obligation to share what little I know. And that is why I do this. And it frankly is also anti-racism work because these white parents who have adopted children of color, once you activate them, they can be wonderful advocates and allies, really wonderful because to put it really crudely, they have skin in the game now, right? And they, they have children who are being racially aggressed and they suddenly see, oh, this is what racism looks like, right? Like the average white person thinks still has this bizarre idea about racism that the only racism is like literally lynching or burning crosses on lawns, right? Like they don't understand that for POC, racism is a daily experience and a lot of it is microaggressions, right? Exactly. And they think that, you know, if we're not talking KKK or skinhead, that, yeah, like like it's so much more than that. Yeah. And so that's why I, and, and there's been this debate in communities of color specifically over Robin D'Angelo's book. Well, she's a white woman. Why is she making money off this? And what I say is this. It needed to be done. This book needed to be written by a white woman, specifically a woman, because people listen to women, but a white woman, because white people need to hear it from white people. There are a million fabulous books by people of color. How many white people are reading those books? How many white people do you know are reading Ibram Kendi? right? Like three. And so, and he's fabulous, but white people needed a white person to hold their hand and explain and say, okay, this is what this is and break it down. And I know that because I grew up in white culture and I grew up with people who ended up virtually all being disabled around concepts around race and racism. So I lived the experience of a person of color inside white culture. So I think we transracial adoptees have special assets. We have an ability to speak, to be bridge people and to speak across some chasms. Not everyone feels a sense of mission I do. And so I'm just going to act on that. And I'm I'm so glad you are. You're just doing amazing work. We talked before about you actually, through your experience as a transracial adoptee, knowing white people, like you know them, right? You are empowered in in some way. Yeah. In in, like in a big way. And what, like you say, paying it forward means everything. Like I don't even know that experience, but listening to you and the way you share the experience yeah, yeah it's big like I'm lear- I'm learning like I am so because oh, I yeah I've always been black but yeah. <laughs> but I'm I'm learning from you too so I'll thank well, you I, I you're so welcome I want to be an ally to all black and brown people mm-hmm. and one way that I can do that is doing this work 
Because if I can activate some white people and white parents who have adopted children of color are in a place, maybe not all of them, but most are in a place where they do want to learn. They want to, they want to help their child. And that's, that's a start. I mean, I would love it if they wanted to help humanity, but they want to help their child. They want to help little Susie. And so they start learning. And if you can activate a white transracially adopted parent, they become like tiger moms, you know, or mama bears or whatever animal analogy you want. One of my friends is a white mom and she has a daughter adopted from China and a son adopted from South Korea. And when her daughter was a junior, a sophomore, junior in high school, she had her first open racial aggression. And my friend, so the daughter came home crying about it from school. And my friend was in the principal's office at seven in the morning the next morning right? Like, how are you going to fix this? My daughter just had a racial aggression, and this is not acceptable. So if I can activate someone like my friend to understand that her daughter experienced racism and to know what to do about it, and to use her white privilege, right? Like, one of the great things is we need white allies, to get this racism thing done with. We can't do it by ourselves. Right. But the way that you activate them is you educate people. Mm-hmm. And the people who are most edu- potentially educable are the white adoptive parents. So, Yeah, they can become ferocious allies. <laughs> yes, really. Yeah, that's really. exciting. Because once they, yeah, once their child has been aggressed, they're like, Oh no! Right, <laughs> and then and then and then the other great thing is my friend was very aware, and she said, "You know, I realized if I had been a mom of color, I probably would not have had, you know, I I used I consciously used my white privilege as a white mom. I knew that this principal would listen to me. They might have shooed away a mom of color, but they're mm-hmm. not going to shoot me away. Yeah. So I was like, you cool girl." Oh, Mark, this has been great. I'm just so glad you uh, said yes to a conversation with me. And and just in closing, what would you like to share with the um, audience as a transracial adoptee? Oh, just that I'm having a wonderful life. (laughs) I I want people to not, I don't want people to tragedize my life either. And when I talk about experiences of racism, I do it to educate. I'm doing great. I hope that anyone listening to this, anyone, whatever their identity is, will feel empowered Mm -hmm. to be out in the world. I so appreciate that you're doing these podcasts. You're delivering a wonderful service. I feel that you and I are very similar in that way you're much prettier than i but (laughs) just to be clear but we're similar in that we are trying to use our lived experiences to educate and help people and that's all i want to do i'm having a great life i am deeply blessed in in many 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 ways so i want to pay it forward well thanks for having me it's been great Thank you. Thank you for all of that. And, you know, I know you have a master's degree in journalism. And yeah. and so I look forward to reading your book. And again, I'll include all of that in the show notes. And Mark, this has been this has been great. Well, you've been great, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. And 
I wish the best to all of your audience, anyone who's listening in. And you, you will be back, right? Yes, I will. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And we'll talk about everything. If you're wondering about my truth chuckle or fun fact during the beginning of my conversation with Mark about Dobie Gray and his song Drift Away, here's the chorus. Give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. Some of you might know that song from 1973. Of course, sung a whole lot better. I look forward to having Mark back on the podcast because there is so much we didn't cover yet. I appreciate his willingness to work in the area of race relations. It is often a topic that is uncomfortable for many to have a discussion about. Mark is willing to take the subject on even when he is met with much criticism or resistance. I like how Mark's humor lightens an often heavy exchange between white people and people of color. Then there's the added layer by some adoptive parents of their views about adoption that have little or no consideration of the adult adoptee's voice. I believe we must allow room or an empathetic space to have serious conversations about race because the world does see color. And why wouldn't we want to acknowledge, celebrate the physical and cultural differences between us? Being colorblind isn't empowering to anyone, especially to those of us who aren't white. Thank you, Mark, for having a conversation with me. You are my go-to person when I want to learn more about how to better understand how many groups are othered in the world. You do your research as an outstanding journalist. You know how to best engage with others who seek understanding, and you have the lived experience to impart wisdom to those who need it the most. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. Thank you so much for being here, and be sure and follow me on Instagram at Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land.